Okay, please introduce yourself now for the record. My name is Andy Greenberg, and I'm a senior writer for Wired. What drew you to the hunt for Satoshi Nakamoto? Well, I, um, let's see. In late 2015, Andy got an email from out of the blue. It was encrypted, and the writer was using a pseudonym. Andy's mysterious correspondent made an incredible claim. He said he possessed documents that revealed conclusively the true identity of Satoshi Nakamoto, the mysterious creator of the cryptocurrency Bitcoin. One of the tech industry's biggest unsolved mysteries. It was the story of the decade, a story that could make a journalist's career. Andy and his correspondent started working together. The evidence was pointing towards a little-known Australian computer scientist named Craig Wright. If you just took a glance at this stuff, you would very quickly find enough evidence to convince yourself, if you believe the documents were real, that this guy had created Bitcoin. This eccentric Australian genius, you know, nobody had ever heard of before. They collected his old blog posts. They did linguistic analysis to compare Wright's writing style with posts written by Satoshi. And on December 8, 2015, Andy published his blockbuster story in Wired, titled, Bitcoin creator Satoshi Nakamoto is probably this unknown Australian genius. And then it happened. What always seems to happen to the Satoshi hunters. This community of Bitcoin enthusiasts and cryptocurrency fanatics just went to work to methodically disprove the claim that Craig Wright was Satoshi Nakamoto. And the fallout made Andy Greenberg's life a living hell. Hi, I'm Brad Stone. And I'm Julie Verhage. And this week on Decrypted, we're asking the question, whatever happened to the hunt for Satoshi Nakamoto? Now, Brett, I know this has captivated me for some time. Julie, I confess to having fruitlessly spent some time on it as well. And over the years, publications like The New Yorker, Gizmodo, Fast Company, Forbes, The London Review of Books, Vice, have all tried to find Satoshi. It's become a kind of journalistic tar baby. The more reporters get entangled in the mystery, the worse the outcome. And there's this question of whether Satoshi should even be identified. You know, Satoshi still controls about a million Bitcoin, making them the largest holder of the cryptocurrency and a billionaire on paper. So journalists would say the world has a right to know. But maybe this genius just wants to be left alone. And if we never find out Satoshi's true identity, does it even matter anyway? Stay with us. First, Brad, remind us what we really know about Satoshi. All we really know about Satoshi is what he wrote. In October 2008, a paper appeared online describing a new kind of digital money called Bitcoin. A few months later, Satoshi released the very first Bitcoin software. And this was right after the financial crisis. Is your money safe? The fall of Lehman Brothers. And of course, it is not just Lehman tonight. Bank of America sealing a deal to buy Merrill Lynch for $29 a share. That is roughly... Bitcoin attracted libertarians and people who had lost faith in the global financial system. They liked this idea of an electronic currency with no central bank standing behind it. In the beginning, Bitcoin was only known within small circles of developers. 
and for a while, Satoshi communicated with them, sending emails, talking on bulletin boards, but those people say they never met Satoshi in person. In 2011, as Bitcoin was starting to become associated with shady criminal enterprises like the Silk Road, which was an illegal online drug market, Satoshi disappeared. And his final post said, quote, I've moved on to other things. It's in good hands. And with that, the legend of Satoshi was born. So Brad, together we went to interview the very first Satoshi Hunter. Right. Joshua Davis is a great journalist who wrote one of the first stories about Bitcoin for the New Yorker magazine all the way back in October 2011. Yeah, and that's just a few months after Satoshi went silent. We went over to the Mission District in San Francisco for this interview, meeting Josh at a small office there. It was a walk-up apartment with just a couple of rooms and a gate on the entry door. We sat down in a quiet room at the back. Please introduce yourself. My name is Joshua Davis, and I am the co-founder of Epic Magazine and a contributing editor at Wired. Josh's article, Cryptocurrency, introduced Bitcoin to a lot of readers. It also set a pattern that would be repeated over and over. Journalists would set out to understand Bitcoin and then get enticed by the Satoshi mystery and end up going down the rabbit hole. <laughs> you know, it's like a classic treasure hunt where you don't know exactly where the treasure is, but you, can, you see one crumb and you follow that crumb to the next crumb. And, and next thing you know, you've been led down this crazy journey. One Bitcoin was only worth about $3 at this time. Josh ended up buying some and spent them at one of the only places he could find that accepted it at the time, a Howard Johnson's hotel near Disneyland. <laughs> Yikes. And since one Bitcoin is around $10,000 today, that ended up being a very expensive hotel room. Josh also attended a crypto conference in Santa Barbara, one of the first, and became convinced that one of the attendees must be Satoshi, hiding in plain sight. He scanned the attendee list, and going on clues like the fact that Satoshi seemed to use some British sayings in his writing, he settled on an Irish cryptography student named Michael Clear. As Josh described it in the story, he met with Michael outside the conference and then asked him point blank, are you Satoshi Nakamoto? We talked about Bitcoin a little bit, and I said to him, I'm also looking for the person who created it. And I said, I know, happen to notice that you have a lot of the same experience. And so I just want to ask you, are you Satoshi? And he said, no, but if I was, I wouldn't tell you. From the story, it's clear Josh wasn't entirely sure if Michael was telling the truth. Right, because denying it is exactly what Satoshi would do. Many years later, Josh is circumspect about the challenges of revealing Satoshi's identity. I think the biggest problem is that there's just not a lot to go on. And so you very quickly start making assumptions. This is something we heard over and over. You start finding ways to convince yourself that you're on the right track. A confirmation bias. So, you know, let's look at some of those assumptions. British English. The assumption that it's a he, because he's using the name Satoshi Nakamoto. I mean, the very initial assumption that he's Japanese. 
Again, there's no guarantee that he's Japanese. At many points in the reporting, I was imagining Satoshi just laughing. Just laughing at me, and then over the years, as other people have chased him, just laughing at everybody else. A few years later, in 2014, the crypto community got a rather large surprise when Newsweek magazine ran a story revealing the true identity of the creator of Bitcoin. It has been one of the biggest mysteries raging across the internet and business worlds. Who is Satoshi Nakamoto? The man who created Bitcoin is known as the father of Bitcoin, the online currency now worth billions. Take a look at this scene last night after Newsweek published an article claiming the man in these images is the Bitcoin founder. Now, this is probably the best known attempt at unmasking Satoshi. So speaking to the woman who wrote it was at the top of our list. My name is Leah McGrath Goodman, and I was the writer of the Bitcoin story cover story for Newsweek back in 2014. At this time, Newsweek had been temporarily out of print. Leah's article appeared on the cover of their first issue back, and there was a lot of anticipation around it. Leah had identified a 64-year-old Japanese-American living in Southern California. And his real name, as it turned out, was Dorian Satoshi Nakamoto. When this hit on March 6, 2014, I was back in New York. I was online and watching from across the country. There was a huge reaction to the story, something Leah says she never could have expected. Camera crews and police cars descended on Dorian Nakamoto's home. He was hounded by reporters while trying to leave his house. I hadn't seen anything like that in California since I was a little kid with the O.J. Simpson white Bronco car chase. I was in complete shock. I just got up and walked across the room and, and people were congratulating me and shaking my hand. And I went to the ladies' room and just threw up. Um, and just panicked, had a panic attack because I realized that this series of events that had been set in motion was... Um, something I, I couldn't change or do anything about. In addition to the media circus, Leah faced an outcry from Bitcoin diehards online, on Twitter and Reddit, immediately with people trying to discredit her story as well. But the biggest blow probably came from Dorian Nakamoto himself. When reporters confronted him on his driveway, he told them he had never worked on cryptography or alternative currencies. It took me a while to get Leah comfortable with talking about this moment in her life. I corresponded with her for a few months and met her for coffee when she visited New York before she agreed to speak with us. I'm not surprised she was reticent because that story was fairly discredited in the in the tech community. So I'm dying to know, Julie, if she could go back again, would she still write her story? Yeah, I asked her about that. If you go back again and you knew that this whole reaction was going to happen, and I mean, it sort of like altered your life quite a bit, uh, would you still go back and write this story? Yeah, I have actually had this question recently put to me by a couple other people, and I said I couldn't really say if I would do it again, to be honest. So does she still think that Dorian is the real Satoshi? Unlike the other people that we've talked to, Leah is still quite certain that Dorian is the guy, just perhaps as part of a group rather than by himself. And we should point out that Newsweek never retracted that story. 
probably should have been enough to dissuade other journalists from following in Leah's footsteps. But as the price of Bitcoin rose from $200 in the fall of 2013 to $800 a year later, the stakes got higher and the intrigue around the mystery of Satoshi got even more intense and irresistible. I found it really exciting that there was this unknown thing. Like, I've always written about whether anonymity is possible on the internet, and it kind of excited me that someone had actually achieved it. Someone had done something really significant on the internet, and we still didn't know who they were. That's Andy Greenberg, the writer for Wired magazine we met at the beginning of the episode. Brad and I traveled down to One World Trade in Manhattan, where the Wired offices are located. Andy has a bushy beard, which he was stroking as he was remembering a time in his life that he had tried to forget. Andy says he was originally deflated by the Newsweek story. He couldn't believe Satoshi was hiding in plain sight. You see, Andy was a Satoshi hunter himself. In 2014, when he was still at Forbes magazine, he had written a story about a man named Hal Finney. Now, Hal was a computer scientist and the first person to ever exchange emails and Bitcoin with Satoshi. Andy suspected maybe Hal was Satoshi himself. Andy had visited Hal, who had advanced ALS, at his home in 2014. At the time, he thought it was significant that Hal and Dorian Nakamoto lived only a half mile away from each other in Los Angeles. Yeah, but then he concluded it was just that confirmation bias at work again. There's a line in that story that I thought was resonant and, and really applies to this entire kind of topic, which is, I believe those connections were in fact random, that Finney is telling the truth when he denies helping to invent Bitcoin, and that I am only the most recent of a long string of journalists to succumb to the mirage of a Satoshi Nakamoto-shaped pattern in a collection of meaningless facts. Yeah, I, <laughs> that's, it's uh, even more painful to think about those words now because I... I think I may have fell for it again. That's because about a year after the Newsweek story fell apart, in late 2015, Andy started getting encrypted emails from someone using the name Gwern Branwen. Gwern said he was in possession of emails, texts, accounting documents, and other evidence that conclusively revealed that an esoteric Australian computer scientist named Craig Wright was the one and only Satoshi Nakamoto. And he was looking for advice on a good journalist to share this document trove with. So, of course, I, I, I couldn't let Gorin just take this to another reporter. I mean, I would have, you know, been losing out on the biggest story. And I, I'm, sure, I'm sure that Gorin knew what he was doing. And so I um, negotiated with him that we would delve into it together, investigate it, co-byline a story, which is very strange because... He's not a journalist, and I don't know his real name. Andy spent three nonstop weeks working on the story, identifying Craig Wright as Satoshi, throwing himself right back into it despite his hesitation. I dropped everything, like eating and sleeping. They reported carefully, worried about inadvertently tipping off their competition. So we were constantly doing these really cagey interviews where we were just asking these really circumspect questions of people. They spent hours poring over old Craig Wright blog posts, comparing his style to that of Satoshi's. Andy was focusing on a possible cover story for Wired, but he also was preparing a shorter piece just in case he heard that competition was working on the same story. 
Andy and Gwern contacted Craig Wright directly, but he was cagey, full of hints, non-denials, and even a little bit of menace. Craig Wright was really uh, weird right from the beginning and just got back to us with these pseudo-denials, like not really denying that he was the guy. They were kind of menacing responses that were not helpful, but not, not actual denials either. Which is like, I feel like that's what Satoshi would do too. Kind of, but they were meaner than Satoshi is in his, um, you know, original persona. A picture seemed to emerge of this eccentric Craig Wright, who had worked in tandem to create Bitcoin with a forensic investigator and U.S. Army veteran named Dave Kleinman, who'd passed away in 2013. And so the weird tone of Craig Wright's writing, which was kind of paranoid and angry and just very strange, the fact that that didn't match Satoshi's persona, that seemed okay. Like, we could explain it away. And then, just as that picture was coming into focus, Andy got word that Gizmodo, the tech news site, was working on the same story. Wired rushed its story onto the web. To be clear, we did not have the opportunity to do the story we wanted to do. Instead, I heard that uh, Gizmodo was working on a piece, and like an hour later, we'd published ours. Because we were not going to like run the risk of losing what could be a, a big scoop. The next few days were pretty dark for Andy. They were miserable days because um, even if you get it right, everyone's furious at you for having violated the privacy of Satoshi Nakamoto. Members of the Bitcoin community were furious at him and Wired for trying to unmask Satoshi. Many of them believe the world should never find out who Satoshi is and that the person deserves the privacy. It was like he had desecrated a temple. The blowback was as bad as anything experienced by Leah at Newsweek. Bitcoin is, by its nature, this thing uh, that a lot of people see as a privacy tool, although it actually is very difficult to use in a private way, as you know, everybody knows increasingly. It's, it's becoming more understood that Bitcoin is not actually very easy to use in a private way. But it comes from the, the world of cryptography, where everyone is obsessed with privacy. And so there are a lot of people who are just angry at me and Gorn and Wired for having even attempted to out, to dox Satoshi, um, this poor genius who just wanted to, you know, be hidden. My Twitter mentions were just a war zone for weeks to come. So I spent, you know, days just defending the, the decision to try to do this. As journalists, I hope you guys can see that you can't, you can't not do it if the clues come to you. It's not like it's not like Satoshi is just a random private person. He would be a multi-billionaire with immense power and money and influence, you know. And that you know that really matters. Like I, I do think it's completely defensible to 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 say who Satoshi is if you know. But then things got worse. A journalist from Forbes wrote a story suggesting that Craig Wright had falsified his academic record, that he didn't, in fact, have multiple PhDs. And then another reporter dug up information showing that Craig Wright had backdated some of his blog posts to make it seem like he wrote them back at the creation of Bitcoin. 
Yeah, Andy says he knew about that, but rationalized it. He felt like Craig was leaving him these breadcrumbs that he'd previously concealed. You know, a lot of people then pointed to that and said, what were you guys thinking? You even saw that he had backdated the blog posts. How could you be so silly? And uh, I don't know. That's a good point. It was confirmation bias. Like, we had other evidence that was pointing in the positive direction. So we found ways to tell ourselves that the negative stuff didn't matter as much as it should have. Andy followed up three days after the original article with a story in Wired that said that elements of Craig Wright's story didn't add up. That later story was titled, New Clues Suggest Craig Wright, Suspected Bitcoin Creator, May Be a Hoaxer. Now, to be fair, Andy had hedged his original story well. He made sure to say in that first piece that Craig could be a huckster. But that's the kind of nuance that gets lost in a media scrum. Right. It almost didn't matter. The Gizmodo story that also identified Craig was less careful. And together, the impression was that both publications had identified Craig as Satoshi. Now there were seemingly big, embarrassing holes in their stories. It seemed like another journalistic failure to hunt Satoshi down. About six months later, by the way, Craig Wright tried to prove publicly that he was Satoshi Nakamoto. He gave a technical demonstration that convinced Gavin Andreessen, a high-profile member of the Bitcoin community. But then a reputable security researcher alleged that he had faked his proof. Wright's claim to be Satoshi seems to have collapsed, at least for now. After the whole painful episode, what really shocked Andy was that readers didn't seem to care as much as he thought they would. Right. He actually said readership was kind of disappointing. Craig Wright's story, people were less interested. Like, I thought that would blow up the internet. And it didn't because people had already gone through this once with the Newsweek piece and they kind of didn't care as much. And then after Craig Wright's kind of like disappointing mysteries, you know, resolution, but then it's not a resolution and then he comes out again and then that's disproven and it's kind of like never resolved. Uh, it just made the mystery much less fun. Uh, and it's it's just kind of sad. And I... I I know that I am part of uh, making that mystery less fun. It's, uh, it makes me uh, it makes me sad that like there was this kind of very pure and like super interesting question of who is Satoshi Nakamoto, and now I, I just get like nauseated thinking about it. And there's one other journalist that we talked to though. Nathaniel Popper from the New York Times, who actually covers Bitcoin, but has only made a best guess at who Satoshi is rather than writing this big expose meant to go on page one of the paper. It doesn't mean he hasn't been interested. He's just been extremely cautious. There's some part of me that's always on edge waiting for the email that finally <laughs> says, you know, here I am. Here, here it is. Right. I doubt anyone could be more curious about the Satoshi hunt than someone like Nathan. But he says he hasn't believed the previous attempts for more than a few hours. You know, I remember when, when Dorian, when that Newsweek story came out, and I remember when uh, the Craig Wright story came out. There were certainly a few hours where it was this open question. I thought, you know, maybe this, this is it. But I think uh, this is one of these cases where the kind of online mob very quickly uh, uh, pulls together the evidence on all sides and, um, you know, people reach opinions pretty quickly. 
but Nathan told us that he does hope we'll find out who Satoshi is. And so, you know, it, it wouldn't surprise me if we do find out at some point. And I, I'll say I'm constantly getting emails from people who uh, claim to be Satoshi and say, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring forward the evidence when the time is right. So what do you think, Brad? Do you think we'll ever find out who Satoshi is? You know, unless Satoshi comes out and uh, moves some of that original block of Bitcoin, I think there's going to be some ambiguity. The, the challenge is that we've built up Satoshi into this legend, and yet people are fallible. They make mistakes. You know, they tell little lies that can get exposed. I think Andy Greenberg from Wired uh, said it the best, Julie, when he told us, we're going to need Satoshi's cooperation if we're ever going to settle this. What do you think? Yeah, I think you're right. I think we've just built up this character. And obviously, as a journalist, I'd love to be the one to break this story. But then as just a person watching this this creation and seeing how someone has escaped, you know, any sort of tracking is just fascinating. And I don't really want Satoshi to ever be found either. Right. There are a lot of members of the Bitcoin community that want him to come back now because there there's this division, right, in the community between kind of traditional Bitcoin and something called Bitcoin Cash. There's lots of animosity without getting too deep into the split. I mean, could Satoshi come back and establish some uh, some order to this world? I mean, there's pros and cons to that too, right? It would be nice to have someone come establish order, but it was also... Bitcoin is something that's supposed to be so decentralized and not really have one thing ruling it. It was just meant to be perfect at the onset. And now, you know, all these divisions had happened. There's other cryptocurrencies out there that people say are going to be better than Bitcoin. And it's just going to be such an interesting story to keep following. Maybe we do keep Satoshi alone as an icon. I mean, one of the great things about this is that he you know, he establishes that there is such a thing as anonymity online, right? That mm-hmm. principle has been undermined so many times over the years, and yet Satoshi kind of reestablishes it. And that's it for this week's Decrypted. Thanks for listening. Join us next week for an even more special episode where we reveal the true identity of Satoshi Nakamoto. <laughs> that's not true, folks. But do let us know what you thought of today's show. You can email us at decrypted at Bloomberg.net or reach out to me on Twitter. And I'm at Julie Verhage. And I'm at Brad Stone. If you haven't already, subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating or a review. They really help us reach new listeners. This episode was produced by Pia Gadkari, Magnus Henriksen, Liz Smith, and Topher Forges. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcasts, and we'll see you next week.